The other day, I managed to get to New York to check out brand and store openings. And one of the very obvious themes in every store and on every website is the important theme of sustainability. Now, the depth and extent of commitment might vary from retailer to retailer, of course, but one startup brand really caught my eye. Another Tomorrow is a confidence startup selling stylish women's clothing with sustainability baked into the brand. The founder, Vanessa Barboni Halleck, is an ex-banker and she brought an incisive and analytical eye to the challenges of supply chain, coupled with an ambition to link self-expression with the consumer's values and sustainability. Vanessa can express this in a far more lucid fashion than me, so I was delighted that we could meet to hear more about the brand, her journey and the direction. So we recorded last week in her Bleecker Street store that is just across the way from the fictional home of Jessica Parker's character in Sex of the City. Now, the reason I mention this isn't just that I'm starstruck, but more importantly, the film crew for the movie were up early and preparing for their shoot that day. So we had leaf blowers, gaffers, movie trucks and garbage collection sounds to contend with, on top of the usual New York background noises. Luckily, none of these interrupted our conversation. So let's jump in time and space to the Another Tomorrow store to hear more. I'm Vanessa Barboni Halleck, the founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow. So just tell us a bit about Another Tomorrow. Paint us a picture with words since not everyone can be in your store. Absolutely. So Another Tomorrow is a technology-enabled, end-to-end, sustainable and attainable luxury brand. And really what we've sought to do is to solve the problem that our primary customer has, is that she wants exquisite luxury quality at a better price point. So we deliver that through a direct-to-consumer model. And for us, our mission is really to show what's possible in reinventing this industry. And so we really take a holistic approach to sustainability, marrying science and exquisite craft. So it's an overall women's ready-to-wear collection, and you would have no idea that it was sustainable, and that's precisely the point. Great. Now, so many important words in that sentence. Uh, So let's try and unpick some of them first off. We talk about sustainability, and that if ever there was a word of the year, it has to be sustainable. (laughs) And we're surrounded by... On the one hand, we have some greenwashing. Everybody is claiming that they are sustainable in some parts. But also, we don't criticise people for making positive steps. So I'm sure everyone's making an effort. But what does it mean to go from uh, a sprinkle of sustainability or less harm to this really embedded sustainable approach? What What was the difference there? So what we found is actually you have to start all the way back at the source. So an immense amount of impact actually happens at the raw material level. And the whole premise for the business, I come actually from a very different background. I was in finance for 15 years. And so truly the only reason for building this company was that sustainability mission and the, and the customer mission. So what we found very early on is that certifications were a great starting point, but they didn't cut it because they actually didn't talk to you about the impact. And there was no real traceability back to the local origin. And so for us, it's really meant building our supply chains truly from the ground up. So from the sourcing of the raw material level up with complete visibility and control over every single step of the processing uh, up the supply chain. So it sounds easy, but 
everyone listening <laughs> will be cringing. Um, in our last sustainability report, uh, we do an annual report, our research team came up with 84 different sustainability standards that were credible in their eyes. Yeah. So it's everything from your lighting to your energy use to your sourcing, water, pesticides, the whole thing. So you had 84 standards that didn't really align yep. uh, or there were gaps between them. And then there was a smaller matter of certification. And then there was a case of audit. And finally, you had to present that to your customers and then still make money. So <laughs> it sounds like you've picked an incredible problem. So just talk me through how you went about getting a grip on it rather than just being paralyzed by the complexity. Well, it certainly helps to start with a clean slate. And so uh, at the outset, Funny enough, the first two people that I hired were actually our sustainability team. So we didn't start with design and we didn't start with marketing. We started with sustainability and really did a very thorough analysis of best practices um, from both a science and industry perspective. And then there are absolutely value trade-offs. And so as a founder, I really had to figure out what was that filtering mechanism going to be and how are you going to consistently make and convey what those trade-offs actually are. Because I'm a big believer that, you know, there is no such thing as perfection, but you have to be able to communicate the compromises that you're making. So we really started, um, started from that place. But I'll also say that, you know, I think that you can get, you know, you can get really obsessive about chemical use and water use, and I think all of that's really important. But the crux of the problem in the industry is overproduction and the intensely speculative nature of the industry, which adds so many layers of risk to the entire system and ultimately is, is what lends itself to needing the lowest cost production possible. So arguably we started in a very attractive part of the market, which already had a very significant white space in a traditional sense, which is hard to find in a very competitive market. And we also start from this place of clothing as an asset. So when we talk about luxury, what we're really talking about is clothing as an asset. And that really cuts to the heart of what I see as the core challenge of this disposability overproduction in the industry. Because you can use whatever perfect chemical management <laughs> program you want, but if we continue to overproduce at the levels that we are now and have things going into landfill, it really doesn't move the needle. So when we talk about overproduction, then... You know, there are two sides to that. One is sell everything you produce. So yep. in that case, it's it's not overproduced. And the other is in a more strategic limiting uh, with this maybe a concept of sufficiency, that this is sufficient number of clothes for any modern person yes. to have. So if I take that and then jump back to the point you made about the trade-offs, it sounds like you need to be having quite an adult conversation with your customers yes. about, I'd like you to buy something, but, you know, not too much. How do you broker this <laughs> idea that you are somehow, it's, maybe it's, it's not marmish, but there is an element there where you're saying, I'm, I'm interrupting your commercial journey with a public service announcement. How, how do you manage that? That's such a great question. We really try not to be pedantic or judgmental, you know, and so the way that we've approached it is just having information uh, in many ways and in many places that is available for the curious. We have plenty of customers who come to us because they love the product, and that's critical for any successful business, and I think it's largely where a lot of the earlier kind of first mover sustainable brands failed. They didn't think sufficiently about the, the product or the customer. So 
We love that customer. At the same time, we do hope that through their journey, they take something away from the ethos of the brand, which is that, wow, maybe I don't need too many of these. Um, At the same time, I think that circularity is so crucially important. And so we've embedded resale in the business from the very get-go. So our technology approach today offers full traceability of every single garment, which really cuts to the heart of the greenwashing. So I'll have to show you the QR codes on the care content label um, so you can see that. And early in Q1, you'll actually be able to use that same code to activate the garment for resale and we can actually authenticate it. So, you know, making sure that every single piece has the longest life cycle possible. And will that need to come back via you or will people like the real real be able to zap the code and say, oh, we know that's another tomorrow piece, authenticated? How, how open is that recycling and reuse going to be? That's such a great question. So right now it's just for us. And what we found is that what the customer is so hungry for is that brand intermediated experience. The best analogy I have is kind of the BMW certified pre-owned car, where they love the fact that the brand is in the middle. So they can see the product, authenticate the product. If they need to refurbish the product, they can do so. And they get the same level of customer service whether they're buying something firsthand or secondhand. And that's something that we really want to solve for. Ultimately, I think that all of these systems are going to be interoperable. You know, I think that that's the way that the technology is moving. And we're really open to that because the core goal is making sure that all of these products stay in circulation for as long as they possibly can. But right now, um, we're owning it. And we are taking the product back, so it's not a peer-to-peer model. We, We talk about the circularity. I'm old enough to have been through a number of retail cycles. I have personally written copy about the classic wardrobe staple little black dress, the perfect white blouse, which you justify by saying it's $500, but divide that by the rest of your life. It's a bargain. And then the next year, I sell them another one that's subtly (laughs) different. So how, how are you going to have asset value while within an industry, there are so many trend changes and last year's garment, you know, how do you go straight to classic without going through the 10 years in the back of the wardrobe? Oh, such a good question. Yes, for us, I mean, we look at it as timeless, but interesting. You can't lose that twist. You know, styles will change subtly over time and we'll have to adapt to that. Um, But we find that having that point of interest in every single garment and that level of care Mm -hmm. That really solves for that. And then, of course, you know, we have some button-down shirts that are, you know, I would, I would be at pains to, <laughs> to sell you on bells and whistles. But it's really kind of maintaining that point of view mm. in every single piece that we make. And so we're talking about with the button-downs. One of the things I would think that makes it stand out then is the manufacturer. So how did you go about having understood where those trade-offs would be, getting a supply chain, someone has to make it. Yes. So we're talking about exquisite luxury. Yes. So finding people who can work with great materials consistently, that's another problem you took on. Yes, no, indeed it is. So, you know, we ended up making entirely custom materials. Um, We found much to our surprise that even, you know, three years ago when we were just starting, Sustainability was already kind of that a little bit in the zeitgeist, but we couldn't find anything that met our standards. So we really, in constructing these supply chains, ended up making entirely custom materials in Europe. On the human welfare side, what became incredibly important to us was ensuring that all of our manufacturing was done at a living wage. And 
candidly, we found that really challenging here in the States. Mm -hmm. Just there wasn't that level of interest and engagement. Is this um, via companies, so you couldn't just outsource it, or are you going directly to people directly. who make it? Yeah, we have direct relationships with our manufacturers. But we did find in Europe um, that there was that level of engagement and there was that level of baseline regulation. So right. we could do that. Um, and so we found manufacturers that were ultimately very close to our mills, so we could have the shortest supply chain possible from that standpoint. And they would literally open their books and allow us to see that they were paying their workers a living wage. And in many cases, the local regulation already mandated that, but we yes. wanted to check. See, this is where you've got to love a bit of regulation as well as free you do. markets. It can work you do. It ultimately makes it easier for the brands. Yeah, and that uh, being able to evidence again. Totally. There are a number of US-based digitally native vertical brands that have gone through the make a splash, do a store, open their pockets to a little bit of private equity, and boom, there's one in every shopping destination. Yes. And mention no names, but some people have now started range bloat. So they've done the whole... We were, let's say, shoes, but now we're a lifestyle brand. Yep. Therefore, we have a capsule collection that's grown and grown. So talk to me about focus and sufficiency. Where does the range stop? Or <laughs> will, will I be saying in three years' time, oh, I met with this, but you only one shop, but now they're everywhere. How, how, do you, how do you foresee your growth in terms of range and this focus? Yeah, so I think that, you know, first we really think about, you know, what's the purpose behind it, right? So the purpose of stores for us are, you know, it's really about building community. And so we're gonna be hyper intentional about where that is uh, most needed and where that uh, will be most effective. Mm. And so, you know, that's, that's one place that we start. But in terms of the range overall, you know, we really look at it as we're a company that behaves at the intersection of design, sustainability, and technology. So everything that we do really sort of sits in that intersection. And then it's really fundamentally what, what's going to add value to our customer and are we in the best place position to do it? And if the answer is it doesn't add value to the customer, then we absolutely won't do it. And if we aren't the best position to execute on it, we won't do it either. And so we try and be really tight about what we bring to market. We're actually going to be opening up um, a third-party marketplace next year um, digitally, partially to solve for exactly what you're talking about, which is that there is um, this very, I don't know, almost human desire to just spread out in all directions. But I think that there's such an incredible opportunity uh, to have a really collaborative approach to all the incredible great work that's being done by companies across the board. And so we can really build out this ecosystem of brands that are doing exceptional work at the sim similar intersection. Many years ago, I was in um, California, and I have a habit of checking out every Patagonia store wherever I go. And I found this amazing wallet, which was an unknown brand, bought it, uh, I still have it, and now they've you know, exploded, they're everywhere. And I just remember, I still have an effect with that brand because of the way it was introduced to me. Sure. It was one of three pieces in the, I think it was the Santa Barbara store, used by the manager there. And so there was that personal connection, even though it's, you know, now a multi-million pound direct brand. Just interesting to see those connections and how technology allows you, if you like, to, I'm not sure it's curate, it's more, um, assemble yes. this world for your customers. Absolutely, and that's exactly what we hear from our customers already. They say, 
We love your aesthetic and mm. we trust you. What bag would you use with this? Or exactly. Can, can you help us? Show us your world. Let, can you please be a point of discovery? And so we actually have seen that in our customer surveys. It's always been on our roadmap, but it's really brilliant to know that you know, what our priorities are also happen to align with our customers' priorities. And we've tested that you know, in, a, in our store. So you'll find, for example, Kyra Weiss, this incredible organic beauty brand, um, happened to know the, the founder and really respect the way that she's built that business. So, you know, so we're able to actually, before we move it into the digital realm, we can test it in the physical realm. Mm. Uh, we've talked about other founders, so I'm going to come back to them in a second, but I just can't skip over community. Yes. Because if, if there's another word that ranks on sustainability <laughs> as verging on empty these days, uh, it must Authenticity, be community. community. You know, community, <laughs> content, commerce, you know, we've all seen the Venn diagrams. What, what does community mean when you're a store? Yeah. Just, just help me understand how that works in real life, either as a customer yeah. or for you as the founder. Well, you know, part, partly, you know, of course, we have a, a real part of our mission is education. Uh, and so some of it literally just allows for a dialogue. And, you know, it's been tricky to have that, those kinds of conversations during COVID. Um, and so we're really excited to actually be able to host talks here to actually have an actual conversation about challenging topics, you know, whether that's sustainability in this industry uh, whether that happens to be, you know, how you invest your money along those lines or whether it's, you know, somebody in our community who's launching a book and, you know, helping the people who are, you know, kind to us and part of our world to also be successful in there. So it's really a place and a space for dialogue. And, and that's the way that we think about it. That's why we're sitting on this couch right now. Uh, we've really sort of formatted the store in a way that is welcoming in that sense to really foster that kind of engagement. Now, I'm sure that our listener will have been totally won over by your enthusiasm and knowledge. Sitting here with you, I'm totally convinced. My question would be though, how do you scale you and build a business that isn't limited by you know, either people who aspire to be you or know you or what you can physically cover yourself? I mean, we could tell, we walked in the store, I could see your eye went over everything, you adjusted the hangers, you picked up on a pin that's in the side. <laughs> so, We'd know the fact we're here at 7 a.m. on a Friday shows you're driven, detail focused. So a lot of this is you. Yeah. How do you scale you? Oh, it's all about culture. You know, it's all about culture. And I think the one thing that you cannot coach is caring, you know. And so that is like the core ingredient of our team are people who care deeply about not just the values of the brand, but just have an, an incredible amount of integrity in what they do. And, and so that's how we've built the business. And it's really where we have not compromised, even when it gets really difficult. Mm. You know, it's, uh, they're, they're oftentimes are not perfect. Uh, it's not perfect timing to <laughs> adjust for that, but it's, it's the most crucial characteristic of the Again, business. How do you scale that? Because um, I used to be, uh, I've totally changed. I used to be one of these people that wouldn't hire anybody unless I'd spent time with them. Because for me, your attitude is vital because behaviors can be trained, but attitude is fundamental. Yes, exactly. So over lockdown, I've hired four people via video. Yeah. And they're excellent. So I'm now wondering, has my approach been wrong? Are my indicators wrong? <laughs> has a video made it more open? You know, I'm really trying to understand you know, whether this is a better option, but our business is simple compared to yours. How, how do you go about finding these people who care and are there enough of them for the brand to grow? 
I, I would say absolutely. So I'm a huge believer in energy and I've actually made it a point to personally meet everyone that we've hired even during COVID, even when inconvenient, even when freezing cold. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, and I'm I actually dodged that. a bullet. I actually <laughs> dodged a bullet where I thought there was somebody who would be really great over Zoom and, and it ended up not being the case. Uh, so I'm a big believer in energy. And then I think if you really develop a management layer within your business who who really deeply connects with that energy, then they can then, it's kind of like, you know, a one-to-many approach of being able to bring in more people. But I see such an incredible opportunity now to open your arms to all these people who really want to align their energy with where they see where they see purpose. So I'm, I'm not at all concerned about talent. Great, that's a lovely place to be now. Talent's a good jumping off point because we dived in, like all good conversations in the middle, we skipped over your path to retail. Oh, yeah. So most of the people <laughs> we talk with have either been traditional retailers who've become digital, digital people who are working in retail, but we don't have that many people who've come from a finance background and instead of investing, have rolled up their well-tailored sleeves and dived into supply chain, store management, hiring. Just tell us about that journey from being managing director in a bank to being CEO and founder of your brand. Well, I think uh, I've always taken on the hard. <laughs> uh, so you know, even even in finance, you know, I focus on emerging markets at an American bank and had to rebuild a whole bunch of stuff through the financial crisis. So. I've never been afraid of, of a challenge and maybe actually a little bit too <laughs> too open to them, you could argue at times. But I was really, I was just incredibly passionate about this problem. I had taken um, a six-month sabbatical from Morgan Stanley, thinking that actually I was going to move into sustainable finance. So I had mm. no initial intention. And this was when? Uh, end of 2017. Okay, so very early even to be talking about uh, sustainable finance. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, you know, I'd had my eye on it for a long time. I actually left in 07 to do, do a degree in energy and environmental policy. I come from a super hippie, academic, techie family. So it's been in the water for a really long time. So it was time for me to find my own personal alignment. So I thought I would do that in finance. But really, during the sabbatical, I, I took sort of an academic research approach to really trying to understand how these major industries were messing up the planet. So how are these negative externalities really manifesting in a concrete way? And I just found fashion to be, I was just floored. And it was the first time, truly the first time, at least career-wise in my life, that I felt called to do something. And I wish that I could articulate that in a more logical way but I can't. I just had to, I really felt compelled to be a part of this solution. And I felt that I had a skill set that could potentially be valuable. And so that was how it all started. And initially, I didn't know that it would be a brand. I actually thought part of the solution would be helping consumers navigate to these better choices. Yeah. So initially, I thought a marketplace could work. And I very quickly kind of scratched that off. And I did that for sort of three different reasons. One, uh, the consumer just didn't know enough to care. Just the baseline level of awareness wasn't there, and therefore a marketplace that was catering to a problem that they didn't feel they had was unlikely Mm -hmm. to be successful. Two, the quality of the product that you would be curating wasn't good enough either. And three, even if you were successful on one and two, you just get your lunch eaten immediately by one of the much bigger 
multi-brand platforms that would, you know, kind of start like a clean by Sephora. So I said, okay, that's out. That's guaranteed to fail. And so the one thing that I thought I would never in my life do, because I saw it as the surest way to lose a bunch of money, was start a brand. (laughs) But I really felt compelled that that was going to be the solution. And retail, you know, honestly, in the very earliest stages of the business plan was not a primary focus because it was, you know, my lens was coming from finance and it was all about scalability and it was about digital and it was about technology. But just truly within the first four weeks of launching, I was immediately looking for retail. And that's because we had the opportunity to do two events before the whole world shut down. And in those events, I learned so much more than I ever could have learned from, you know, multiple transactions in the best CX team. We wanted to be in front of our customer and listen to her. Yeah. And uh, it, it drove, you know, listening is a key word. Listening, yeah, yeah. listening. And it's such an important mechanism mm. to listen. And, you know, we have a phenomenal customer service team that is super high touch, but there is no substitute for being in real life with, your, with your customer. And having that mental model of the customer and her interaction, uh, it helps bring the data to life. Yes. Because I think if you're working in a data team, it's a bit like being in a submarine listening to sonar. A trained operative will think, well, there's something in front of us, but you you know, you couldn't tell what it is. Totally. With, with no disrespect to any sonar operators <laughs> listening, in case I'm totally wrong. You're um, probably in the clear. But as I look around the store and I'm seeing sustainable products, uh, I think it's coconut matting. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing, you know, nice woods being used, light and airy. You wear the digital dimensions very lightly. Yes. So someone who didn't know or care wouldn't know or care. But yet at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned how important digital was. So how do you think being digital first gave a different foundation or warp and weft to building the business today compared to if you built it more traditionally a decade ago? Where's the digital DNA in it? You know, I think that it comes from a couple of different places. Uh, One is, you know, everything works tightly together. So we don't have this situation where you have a company where different parts of the business are sort of run in isolation. So everything is run tightly in an integrated way. So there's that for us, which just brings efficiency. I think that the underlying part of it is clearly the product digitization. So the fact that every single product has its unique digital identity is something that we bring to life in both a digital context as well as in a physical context. And by unique, again, we're talking at the individual garment level. At the individual, precisely, at the individual garment level. And so we have a brilliantly trained staff. Um, They're consistently showing the customer how they can activate that today and how they'll be able to activate that in the future for resale. Um, So I think a lot of it is really about integration, efficiency, and then bringing that product digitization to life for storytelling and for circularity. Mm. So, what next? We're coming to the oh. end of our time. <laughs> I feel I've caught up, thank you very much. But you know, it's nearly eight o'clock in the morning. What, what, what's coming next? Uh, what, what's on your mind for the coming, obviously peak season and then into 2022? Well, you know, for us, a lot of COVID has just been, you know, trying to establish a product market fit in a really bizarre time. And we've found that actually we really have nailed that. So we're really excited about that. We have enough data to really figure out, you know, where we're going to lean in, where we're going to lean back. And so I've been very focused on scale. 
So we've just onboarded a new climate-positive farm to really scale. Um, yeah, in New Zealand, we're thrilled about that to really open up scale on the supply chain. We've got some really exciting things happening on the investment side um, as well, which we're thrilled about. So really focus on you know scale and partnerships for scale. And then obviously on technology. So we've got a lot going on behind the scenes in launching resale, and launching marketplace. So we have a lot going on there. And then it's community building and spending time with our customers. So we're thrilled that the world is in a place that is a little bit more open and we can start I, to have that. Touching wood as, uh, right? as we no. say. But it was tough. You know, we opened the store in June and that was brilliant. And then, you know... September, I'm sorry, in June... Uh, People could walk around yes. again. Yes. People could walk around. The foot traffic was phenomenal. And then, you know, September was a little touch and go because, you know, Delta reared its head and kids were back at school. So there was, you know, sort of tricky. So, you know, I think we've all figured out how to operate safely at our own individual levels of comfort. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a great time to be together again. Great. Uh, now, I'm sure I've forgotten hundreds of things and everyone's screaming and thinking, Ian, why didn't you ask this? Is there anything <laughs> that you're thinking, he should have asked me that question? Are we, is there any bit we've missed? The, the well, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't ask me about the metaverse or, NF or NFTs. I'm, I'm old enough to remember, was it Second Life? So I'll, I'll wait until I see some metaverse first. That sounds perfect. Um, and also, I don't think you can really enjoy the cloth in the metaverse yet. No, no, but I, I will say I have I have three amazing stepkids, um, and they do live in two different worlds. You know, they yeah. live in a digital world. I mean, they really live in the present world, but it's remarkable. And I think that the opportunities uh, in the design landscape are incredible. Mm. So you know, we're obviously quite focused. You have to be for any business, but certainly any early stage business. But uh, the opportunities are not lost on me and also having the product digitization and the ability to kind of transfer between these two worlds. So, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, so if we're when you open up a men's range, I'll consider clothing myself in the metaverse appropriately. I will uh, keep you posted. <laughs> we see a lot of demand from, uh, from men, actually. So we'll see. Well, most men mostly don't buy their own clothes, but those who do tend to spend more. So yep. for the uh, specifying man about town, then uh, I'm sure there'll be interest. Vanessa, all I can say is thank you. It's been absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet me this morning. Oh, it's my huge pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it. We're done. Cool. Let me just check that was recorded. Uh, I'm so sorry about all the crazy noise. Of course, they're cleaning up for this filming. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going to have so much it's background fine. noise. So the guys who do our um, our sound engineering, are they're very grumpy most of the time. Nothing impresses them, but nothing phases them either. Oh, great. So, so a, these, a leaf blower at 7.30 in the morning. There are these two ex-BBC uh, guys who set up a production company and I could send them anything and they'll clean it up. Brilliant. More you seem super relaxed about the leaf blower and I was thinking, it's okay. Like, you know, what are we going to do? Stop and start? No, no it's, it's true. Fine. It's so true. So it's uh, all good. Right, so we just turn this off. Stop. 